2: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan LeBell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Bradford Pearson to discuss his new book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration, and resistance in World War II America, published by Atria Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster in 2021. The book provides a political history of the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II by first going back in time to highlight the complex history of how Japanese and Chinese Americans first came to the West Coast and the nuances of the racism they encountered. Once the book establishes the origins of anti-Asian American racism, Pearson follows several teenagers, all Nisei, born in the US, American citizens, whose education and participation in the sports that often defines Americans were interrupted by the transports, relocations, and imprisonments during World War II. Pearson uses their role in sports teams created in a concentration camp, Heart Mountain Relocation Center in Cody, Wyoming, to document racism and discrimination, but also sports competition as a means of escaping and regaining dignity. Bradford Pearson is the former features editor of Southwest the Magazine, and he's written for the New York Times, Esquire, Time, and Salon. The Eagles of Heart Mountain, it's his first book, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Let's start with how you came to be interested in the history of anti-Asian American racism and this particular football team's success. What made you want to write this particular story?
1: Yeah, so it's actually kind of uh, an interesting story that gets back to my journalism roots in that Back in 2013, I was working on a story, uh, a freelance story in, in Yellowstone National Park. And one of the days when I was there, one of the other people on the press tour uh, who, who was running the press tour said, well, wh- why don't we go see, we'll t- leave the park for the day and we'll go outside of Cody, which is where the Hartwood Mountain Relocation Center was located. And there's a, a small museum there that's a really great museum. And I was like, sure, let's 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 go check this out. And I studied history uh, in, in college and in uh, pretty extensively in high school too. And I thought, you know, I understand the story going in. I know what I'm going to see. And I left feeling really embarrassed by how little I knew and just thinking, wow, if someone who has my background understands this little about this part of American history, then a person, an average American knows next to nothing about this. And while I was at the museum, there was one very small mention of the uh, the Camps high school football team, the Eagles, and uh, I have those sentences pretty much memorized. But I won't say them because they give away the end of the book. But uh, they basically just sort of stoked this interest in not only uh, this team in particular, but Japanese American history and the history of immigration and, and racism on the West Coast. That sort of probed that that sort of pushed this book forward. Uh, but it took it took a long time for me to actually realize this was something that not only wanted to do but had the ability to do.
2: No, and and actually in my own work I see this as well. You know I study the Supreme Court. People write about racism. They write about citizenship and how we've come to define it in terms of the Supreme Court, and they really lean lightly on the 19th century and 20th century cases, all involving. Uh, Asian Americans that really shaped the court's doctrine there. So it's 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 everyone I think does not really understand the nuances of this very early history. Um, you know, the book depends on some very established literatures in political and legal history, but also oral history. It, it tell me a little bit. About the kind of archival work you did, your you know your success in finding people to talk to about the concentration camp and the football team, and also, um, well, maybe uh, you know share that that sort of aha moment from the archives in terms of something that surprised you or turned the book in a different direction.
1: Yeah, well, I was I was really lucky in my research because, like you said, I mean, this is a book that's set. Uh, the, the main characters are born in the mid-20s and most of them have died, so I've relied really heavily on the archives, not only at Heart Mountain, but archives at uh, UCLA, the National Archives, Cal Berkeley, University of Wyoming. And there's an organization based in Seattle called Densho, and it's a nonprofit group that has sort of tasked themselves with uh, educating the, the U.S. public about Japanese-American incarceration. And their archives are, are incredible. You know, it's a lot of family archives, but it's also WRA files. And back in the 70s and 80s, a group of Cal State students started interviewing uh, a lot of Nisei folks who were in the camp and the, the final generation of Issei folks. And a lot of those have been digitized. So I was really lucky in that some of the players and a lot of the folks that I wanted to focus the book on had done these oral histories in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then had not only been digitized the videos themselves, but it had been transcribed and then had been made searchable. So I was able to sort of even just go through the Densho archives and search for terms that I wanted to look for. One thing that makes researching uh, this particular period and this part of of, uh, American history interesting is that the WRA kept files on everyone that was in the camp and then if those folks have passed away or if you have family permission you can pull those files from the national archives so i went down to the, the dc archives and pulled all the files of all the players uh, their parents and other folks in camp that i wanted to research for the book uh, especially when when you have teenagers a lot of those files were high school transcripts, letters that they had sent seeking work placement and different things that really helped me when I was writing a book that ostensibly at first I thought was uh, about football and athletics, but then I sort of ended up writing it in a way that sort of tried to tell the story of Japanese American life and incarceration just through these teenagers. So having all of these files sort of help fill out what their lives were like when they were in camp from a government perspective from, from how they were doing in school or if they had disciplinary reports or even all, all their medical records are in there too, which I used very loosely. I, I didn't really want to invade um, the characters, especially the characters who had passed away. I didn't want to invade their health in a way that I thought was unnecessary or unethical, but there were times when their medical conditions applied to injuries that they may have had on the football field. Um, so that's when I thought that it was okay to use those. um as when it comes down to to interviews, I was able to interview one former player,, uh, which was incredibly helpful because it sort of steered my research in a way that i I didn't think it would in terms of Japanese American sport and history. But then I was also able to speak with a lot of folks who were in camp themselves, uh, either as children or as teenagers, including two widows of players who had they had met their husbands. In camp, So it was interesting because there were folks that had been there, had known uh, their husband since they were 16 when they first met in camp, which gave a, a really great perspective. And I interviewed a lot of siblings and, and children of uh, the players as well.
2: Action to you writing this book.
1: Uh, uh, At first, and and to this day, was surprisingly positive and supportive. Um, As a journalist, you never know going into a story whether someone will actually want to speak with you. Um, So uh, when I first started working on this, I told myself that I wouldn't do the project. At that point, I didn't know if it was going to be a book or a long form story or a a podcast or a dead end. Um, But I told myself I wasn't going to do whatever it was if I didn't have The permission of the families that I wanted to talk to, not only from an ethical standpoint, but also from a material standpoint, I just wouldn't have had enough information or I wouldn't have had a good story to actually tell if I just had box scores and old newspaper stories, it wouldn't have filled out the characters enough. Um, so basically what I did was when I first figured out that I wanted to write about this team, I figured out who the best players were. And then I sort of created this spreadsheet of and ranked characters. It sounds a little crass, but I, I I came up with people who I thought would be the main characters of the story. And then I started finding their families if they had passed away or I started finding them. And the the first player, the best player is a player by the name of Babe Namora, And I found his daughter, uh, I found her email address to this really old LinkedIn profile that I think she had abandoned. And I reached out to her and I only found out recently that she had done, after I reached out to her and said, Hey, this is who I am, that she had done a great amount of research on me after I originally emailed her to make sure that I was a legit person. But then I spoke with Jan and everything sort of snowballed from there. She was interested in telling her dad's story for the first time. And then she also called some of the other characters um, families of of the folks who who had passed away and vouched for me, which was really huge. And I did something, you know, sort of fast forwarding from that moment. But after I wrote the first draft of the book, I did something that I've never done before, which is actually sent the draft to the subjects and their families to sort of say, hey, you know, this isn't my story. This I'm not Japanese American. And I've never been to camp and I haven't experienced what your family has experienced. So I want you to read this if you'd like to. And if there's anything that I missed either factually or tonally or culturally, or even from a translation standpoint, because there are a lot of times that I had to translate Japanese expressions and things that I, you know, I, I don't speak Japanese. So, um, so that was and everything came back positive. There were some small changes, but and the families have been overwhelmingly supportive since the book's come out, too.
2: So the book is trying to place Babe and the horse and others in a much longer history. And let's start with how Japanese Americans come to live on the West Coast and the situation that they find themselves when Pearl Harbor is bombed. Um so if you would just sort of take us back to Little bit, you know, you can't cover everything in a podcast, Uh, starting in the 17th century, uh, because you try to make the case for Japanese Americans as, in a sense, part of the founding people of the United States and seeing themselves in that way. So, if you could just give us, you know, we've got listeners from all over the world, (laughs) a, a little bit of an idea. And as you say, most Americans don't know this history either. When is it that Japanese Americans arrive? What do they do, and how, how do we find them by the time Pearl Harbor
1: is bombed? Right. So, uh, you know, like you said, like most people think of uh, Asian American immigration as, as a fairly new phenomenon here in the United States, and it's just not true. I, I mean, there were first there were folks from Japan that came to North America, came to to Mexico in the 1600s. Not many stayed, but the, that happened so you know when we think of this as a 20th century phenomenon we think of uh, a changing American populace now it's the seeds of this have been planted for you know almost half a millennia looking back on it but then there's there were small trickles in the uh, in in the early part of the 19th century but then really after the uh, Meiji restoration in Japan that's what led a lot to uh, Japanese immigration to the United States, so some of that was to Hawaii at first to help in the sugarcane fields, and then slowly it started trickling to the West Coast, and that really exploded when um, after the uh, in in the late eighteen nineties, when Hawaii officially became part of the United States. So when that happened, there were certain immigration laws and changes that allowed. Folks that were in Hawaii to also come straight to to California, so people who had worked in the fields in, in Hawaii now were in California and Washington and Oregon, and Japanese immigrants there, you know, used the skills that they ancestral skills that they had from Japan, and a lot of that was in farming and ranching. So, you know, at first they started as 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 laborers, and then became tenant farmers, and slowly uh, o- over the course of the early twentieth century, that led to to farm ownership, which at the same time led to white supremacy and, and folks wanting to get rid of the Issei generation, which is the first generation of Japanese immigrants.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. (coughs) Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Brad, as I read the book, um, the courts appear to be almost a character in the book. The legislatures are passing laws the executive is passing, is, 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 is issuing orders that all have these impacts, and everything is going to the courts at different levels. I'm wondering when you pull the lens back on all of this activity, whether you see any difference between the way local courts, state courts, or federal courts deal with these issues of treating Japanese Americans differently from any other citizens.
1: Yeah, I think that you know, even when you look back over the years, even before Pearl Harbor, even before the executive order that eventually led to incarceration, you see all these laws that sort of pop up across California, whether it's alien land laws um, or different laws when it comes to rights that that Japanese, uh, the Issei generation, or their Japanese American children have, that, like you said, are, are just blatantly illegal um, on a constitutionality. Uh, standpoint. And, and some of them eventually get further up to to the federal courts, but so many of these never go challenged and folks are just sort of emboldened to continue applying these laws. Even when uh, the camp opens in Wyoming, you have residents of Cody and Powell and their town councils that are passing laws to exclude folks from, from voting in Wyoming or from staying in Wyoming afterwards. And, you know, a, a lot of this, these laws sort of lead to In in an indirect way, in that um, you know, it's sort of right after Pearl Harbor. there, There was a small period where public sentiment and sentiment from government officials was, if not necessarily supportive, quiet. You know, some folks were saying we need to support our Japanese American neighbors, and then pretty quickly that that turned. And I think that that turn was from you know because of a lot of media coverage, but it also meant that it allowed folks like Carl Benditson and John DeWitt to craft this law specifically targeting Japanese Americans. And I don't think that's possible without these other laws that had been popped up over, over the decades before. So again, whether it was immigration quotas or alien land laws, these sort of things that had set the stage for this final act of white America against Japanese Americans and their ancestors that basically just Legalized what they'd wanted to do to Japanese and Japanese Americans since they f- they first arrived here in the uh, in the United States.
2: Now that order comes out of FDR's White House. Uh, you grew up in Hyde Park, and I'm wondering the book paints a rather negative portrait of FDR uh, in terms of his willful misunderstanding of Japanese Americans' contributions to American society and his lack of care, actually, as you describe it, in in reading the information provided to him by respected members of his own administration, Um, and also sort of a seemingly uh, disregard for data, because there was data that showed, in fact, that Japanese Americans either first or second generation, were were not posing a threat. But so did the writing of this book change how you felt about FDR? Um, Or did you go into this book knowing that FDR was as much of a part uh, of the executive order that ultimately incarcerates 120,000, I think that's the number, uh, of, Um, of, of American citizens?
1: Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question. It's something that I sort of grappled with before I wrote the book, while I was writing the book, and and continue to do so. Like I went to Franklin Delano Roosevelt High School. My mascot was the president's. Uh, you know, every you know every day you're driving by either his home and library or a building that was built with New Deal funds that he personally approved the architectural plans for. Um, so you have this you know, you spend your whole life growing up in Hyde Park, you sort of have this impression of who Roosevelt is and what he's done. Even if you're not into politics, even if you're not into history, it's sort of – is just sort of fused into what your life is like if you grow up in Hyde Park. So I knew going into this that this project would definitely give me a different perspective on Roosevelt, but I don't think I understood – I definitely didn't understand fully what his thoughts were in terms of Japanese the Japanese quote you know the, the quote race of of Japanese in in America and abroad and I like you said there was this willful ignorance on his part this sort of neglect of duty that I think really you know it, it, it he he put he pushed this decision off on other people and then when they presented him with a plan he just said okay just you know, make it as easy as possible. And people interpreted that differently. They, they they interpreted it as saying, okay, well let's just let's just get rid of everybody. And some folks um you know, used Roosevelt's decision to allow for it to just um for their own racist means. And I think that Roosevelt gave them the the green light to like I said do something that hundreds and thousands of white supremacists that wanted to happen for for decades on the West Coast.
2: You have a lot of examples in the book. Um, and so would you pick one and, and flesh out, we have a lot of people listening who are presidential historians who are interested in the dynamics inside administrations and how these kinds of decisions get made. Just sort of pick one example of how it is that... Um, uh, there is this willful ignorance or there is uh, a sort of twisting of the information that they have before them
1: sure well um before i do that the one thing is that a lot of this information came from greg robinson's great book which is um by order of the president which sort of walks people through like how executive order 9066 came to be and a lot of the research that i did for my book on this came from from greg's research and he's done tons of great work um, talking about before the war and during the war and after the war in, in Japanese American life. But I think the one thing is that um, you know, Roosevelt's administration had been spying on the Japanese American community since for decades, you know since the early 30s. So you have all of this detail that um, is is in reports that Roosevelt had at his disposal. so you have naval intelligence that is actually, In in, folks in the Japanese American community in in LA know that they know the naval intelligence officer who is there with them all the time. And they welcome him into their homes and they have dinner with him. And he sits there in community meetings. And he sends this report that goes up to the White House right after Pearl Harbor. And it says – Look, at, you're going to have no trouble here. You're not going to have a, a, an issue with espionage. You're not going to have any sabotage from this community. These people, the the Nisei generation, are loyal Americans. And if there's any folks in the Issei generation who have loyalty to Japan, they're they're going to be quiet. They know what's good for their families. And they live here in the United States. So you're not going to have any issues with that. And Roosevelt gets that report. And there's one thing in the report that he sort of takes away from that. And that's within the report, there's also a small thing that mentions, oh, also, you know, sort of, by the way, we really need to do a better job of securing all of our our dams and power plants and all of these different things on the west coast and roosevelt sort of interprets that as connecting the two ideas which is connecting the idea of the possibility of japanese american espionage or sabotage with these sort of under secured public amenities and the two ideas get sort of conflated and i think that roosevelt sort of says oh we need to do this and then allows (laughs) the wholesale removal of 120,000 Japanese Americans and their families.
2: You know, another character sort of broke my heart to read about in the book was Earl Warren, who appears several times. And I was wondering if you could just flesh out a little bit, you know, for those of us who are sort of proud of what he did in Brown versus Board of Education, just, you know, how blind he is towards one racism as he is focusing on another.
1: Yeah, Earl Warren is, is a character that coming into this research, I really had, like, like you said, you know, you have, you have sort of this rosy image of, of who he is uh, through the 50s and, and 60s. But before that, he, as attorney general in California, and then later as governor of California, he really not only allows the incarceration of Japanese Americans, but supports it from uh, not only a political standpoint, but from a personal standpoint. And I think that, you know, there was one really small thing. In the book, and and that there's there's a group on the West Coast in California called the the Native Sons and Daughters of the Golden West, and they're this group that was created as quote you know the 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 hardy original sons and daughters of of California, and it's this essentially at this point before the war it becomes sort of this white supremacy organization and fights actively. For the removal of Japanese Americans and Earl Warren was a member of that and Richard Nixon was a member of that group. So you see this group that had been around for decades before the war that was always and constantly fighting for Japanese American removal and and Issei removal and then you see them in the 70s, you know, a few decades later in the Oval Office with Nixon. Um, So like you said, Earl Warren was sort of this interesting character that I, you know, like you said, it's, it's it's a little heartbreaking, but I do think that later on in his life, he was really sickened by what he had done to the Japanese American community. And I, I didn't study Earl Warren enough in this book to. And I'm sure there's lots of folks who are listening who understand his post war life a lot more than I do, but I do think that making the connection between what he did on Brown versus Board of Education. And his, his previous decisions, I don't think that's an incorrect connection to make in terms of him rethinking his, uh, his past mistakes.
2: Uh, Jill Watts, the author of The Black Cabinet, The Untold Story of African Americans and Politics During the Age of Roosevelt, was a guest on the podcast not too long ago. And, and her story is an interesting one, uh, uh, read together with yours. In, in her book, She sees Eleanor Roosevelt and documents how Eleanor Roosevelt is a a diplomat, uh, sort of a a domestic diplomat uh, among African-Americans who are trying to find a way for FDR to treat them fairly in the New Deal in terms of both the benefits of the New Deal and the institutions of the New Deal and the premise of the New Deal. What role does Eleanor play in in your story? I, I saw some parallels with with Jill Watts' book.
1: Yeah, that's, um, you know, Eleanor, again, as, a, as a, a child of Hyde Park, you sort of have this idea of, of who Eleanor Roosevelt is too. And in my opinion, in a lot of ways, she came out looking even better in my memory uh, because of her, her treatment and her desire to to help the Japanese American community. So right after Pearl Harbor, Eleanor and uh, Fiorella Guardia, who is the mayor of New York City, but then at that point is sort of in control of a a, a wartime group that Roosevelt puts him in charge of a, a group that's basically helps with blackouts and air raids and him and Eleanor head to the West Coast. Uh, and Eleanor immediately starts reaching out to the Japanese American community. So whether it's in Seattle or San Diego or Los Angeles, she starts meeting with these groups. And this is well before 9066. So this is um, in January. And this it, 9066 is not until mid-February. But she's already sort of putting in the work there and saying in reassuring these groups that... American citizens, you'll be treated fairly as Americans, and it really breaks her heart when Roosevelt signs Nine Zero Six Six. From not only not only from a, a moral and ethical standpoint, but from a personal standpoint, and that's one of the first times in their marriage that he makes a sort of decision that's this big without consulting her. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's biographer has sort of pinpointed that as one of the moments that really broke their marriage and the trust within their marriage, despite all of the other things that FDR had done to, <laughs> to lead to the mistrust in their marriage. But um, you know, during the war, she convinces FDR to allow her to, to visit Heel River, which was one of the camps in Arizona. And when she she visits there, I mean, Roosevelt's not... At that point, Roosevelt isn't even meeting... He never even meets with the head of the War Relocation Authority, Dylan Meyer, uh, who, who replaced Milton Eisenhower, his original pick. So he... Roosevelt has, FDR has sort of checked out on this whole part of the war effort uh, or his part of the war effort, I suppose. Um, So Eleanor is is really sort of becomes the person who, you know, people reach out to when, when there's problems in the camp and she has very little ability to change things. But I think the Japanese American community saw a champion in her and that she was that uh, she came to visit. And and she made these sort of minor changes. Right, I mean, even right after the war, when she was, vi- or excuse me, right after Pearl Harbor, when she was visiting the communities on the West Coast, they were saying very basic things like, we can't pay our bills right now at our at our markets or in our orchards because all of Issei bank accounts have been frozen. So she worked with the Treasury Department to unfreeze those and uh, worked with the Federal Reserve to, to help set aside some folks' um, money and, and property during the war, even though most folks lost everything. So Eleanor Roosevelt really did work hard with the, the Japanese American community uh, in a way that her husband obviously did not.
2: Um, this is a trade book that uh, has a compelling sports story that I don't want to you know spoil. But I do want to ask you about the way in which sports, specifically football, but also baseball, Uh, feature in the lives of the Nisei, both before they are incarcerated and while they're incarcerated.
1: Yeah, sports played at the time um, a really huge role in in Japanese American life. So in a lot of ways, when the Issei generation first came to the United States, baseball sort of grew up on this parallel path in Japan and the United States. So there wasn't this Learning curve for the Issei when they arrived in the United States. They didn't have to. They saw this quote, "American sport." No, they they just knew baseball. In the same way, baseball uh, came up at the same time in Cuba too. So you have all of these leagues on the West Coast that immediately pop up, full of Issei immigrants that are not only playing amongst themselves, but are also playing teams of of Chinese immigrants. They're playing white teams. And after a few years, that also bleeds into to football, which was still a relatively new sport in the United States at that time. So you have football leagues popping up in, in Vancouver and San Francisco, and that eventually trickles down once the sort of locus of Japanese American life moves to LA after the San Francisco earthquake. All of this starts to happen in LA. And a lot of that is precipitated by a group called the uh, Nisei Athletic Union, which was you know, in the same way that CYO basketball was to to Catholics on the East Coast, the Nisei Athletic Union really was this hub of sport for the Japanese American community. So it was baseball, basketball, softball, swimming, track, weightlifting, and the kids grew up in this hyper athletic community. Um, and, and uh, you know, their, their parents did see it as, a, as sort of an entree into American life, where these kids could play baseball, and then they would play baseball with kids down the block that weren't Japanese-American. And then once they got to middle school, they'd start playing with all the middle school kids. And I think that in a lot of ways, football was sort of the final frontier for that, in that even through the 30s and 40s, there weren't that many Japanese-American players on football teams, and, and some of that has to do obviously with size, and that the Japanese and Japanese American diet at that point was much different than the white American diet, and it took decades for that to change and to have, um, you know, sort of a, a difference that size difference make up. Um, but then once everyone got to camp, it was really the only thing to do. Um, when they first got to camp in the fall of 42. Especially at Heart Mountain, the first thing that everyone did was clear a baseball field. Next thing they did was make a football field. So you have these sort of community activities that are centered around sport. That gives somebody uh, you, you can you can work out. It gives older Issei something to cheer for and something to do during the day. And eventually, that at Heart Mountain, especially that just snowballs into uh, football leagues, baseball leagues, softball leagues, and eventually they get a gymnasium. So there's basketball and volleyball. Um, There were kendo classes. There was sumo wrestling. So you had this – Sports played a really big part at Heart Mountain because they had nothing else. Uh, The WRA didn't allow folks to have Japanese-American literature or Japanese music. So – the one way that at that time they were sort of able to keep up any sort of cultural uh, a, a, a reflection of, of who they were on the West Coast before they came to Wyoming, sports sort of helped fill that role, especially at first.
2: Um, It wasn't clear to me in the book whether or not girls and boys were participating in the sport. Obviously, your focus was on these male teenagers involved in football, but but. Uh, and there is that amazing moment of protest in which the women, uh, say, you know, we will not accept this categorization of ourselves, but what about sports and the girls and the women, were they as enthusiastic, um, uh, cheerers, were they as enthusiastic players? Was, was there a separate culture on, uh, within the camps?
1: Yeah. So that's um, it's something I struggled with a bit in the book was I felt the entire time that it was kind of hard to break away from the fact that my characters were all teenage boys um, and to sort of make it more encompassing in terms of reflecting um, women and 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 girls in the camp. Uh, and it's something I, I struggled with and I, and I wish that I had found a better way to incorporate them. Uh, but yeah, there were there was there was girls basketball, there was girls volleyball, but it was a much smaller it wasn't nearly to the extent that it was for the the teenage boys. But you know, even there were there were sixth grade girls basketball teams that were coached by some of the high school boys. And they there were definitely there it was definitely there. There was also one of the, the most co ed things you could do at camp was Wyoming gets super cold, so they made a bunch of ice rinks, and a lot of these kids went ice skating for the first time in their lives. Because so many of them grew up in LA and LA County that, you know, no one had ever it had never even been freezing below freezing in their entire lives. So ice skating was a really big part of the winter months at at Heart Mountain for for kids and everyone up through you know their 40s and 50s.
2: Uh, I want to say that I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I know something about uh, West Coast anti-Asian racism. I think I know quite a bit about Hirabayashi and Korematsu and the the earlier 19th century cases. But I have to say that the way you framed the history in the sort of first 100 pages of the book was incredibly helpful to me. Uh, and I think that, uh, re you know, listeners would find it interesting to read students. This is a, this is, this is a sophisticated yet accessible version of the history. And it, and it, and it really does a wonderful job pulling from what are the most respected sources in the field. Meanwhile, you know, adding the archival research that you did on, um, the, the particular characters in the camp. So I just want to say that was terrific. And, and as a kind of a personal thing that I never do, uh, you talk about Morton Grodson's, the uh, University of Chicago's research on the editorials and racism in the editorials. And and my first
1: teaching prize
2: was the Grodson's prize at the oh, University wow. of Chicago. And so it, it, it really made my day to get to page 34. Oh, <laughs> and,
1: yeah. And it's so interesting because like that, you know, sort of highlighted Grodson's research really highlights the... Very incredibly quick shift that after Pearl Harbor and by the time of incarceration of, of public opinion. It, it just goes from he did this great project for people who aren't familiar with. He went back and, and studied all of these different editorials throughout newspapers up and down the West Coast and sort of over those months from December through February just tracked the editorial tone of. Uh, Anti-Japanese sentiment on the West Coast, and at first, it's very supportive of the, their Japanese American neighbors. And then, by the time the executive order comes out, it's just this firestorm of, um, you know, misinformation to begin with. But then, just you know, it becomes really virulent very quickly. And his research is just it, it's it's really incredible. And I wish I could have found a way to put more of it in the book.
2: Well, and it's actually really relevant to today as we Mm -hmm. talk about the role of the fourth estate in how certain kinds of of issues are framed, the kinds of vocabulary that they use. That's something that you're concerned with and careful with in the book. Um, Before I ask you about your next project, is there something I haven't asked you about about this book that you would really like to share?
1: Uh, well, I think from a, a constitutionality standpoint, I think one of the more interesting parts of my research was the draft resistance movement within Heart Mountain, in that it started out. So, you know, I, I started out thinking about this as a book about Japanese American football, but then the problem with that is that football is only happens in the fall. So, uh, so I had to think from a timeline standpoint. I had to figure out, okay, well, what am I going to write about for the rest of this? book. And it just happened that at Heart Mountain is the largest concerted draft resistance movement of Japanese Americans during the war. So it not only lined up from a a timeline standpoint to include the story, but it was also, for me, it was really important because for those who aren't familiar, basically the, the army started drafting Japanese Americans out of the camp to send to the front lines in Italy and France. And for me, it became really important when I was trying to fill out all these characters and their personalities and I realized that all of these kids who are on this high school football team at the same time are also being asked to in their life which is to wh- whether they want to uh, abide by the draft board and go to their draft physicals and everyone on the team makes a bit of a different decision some players write, you know willfully just get on the bus and they go to their physical some of them get sent straight to to Italy some Get on a boat and are on a boat when uh, the bombs are dropped uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And some folks do resist the draft. And so that was one thing that when I went into this project, I knew very little about. Um, And it was a movement that really swept across all of the camps and got to the core of the constitutionality of the camps. And it asked a lot of big questions about who we are as Americans and who America considered. Its citizenry at the time, and you know, to this day, I think in a lot of ways um, that was one thing when I was researching the book and working on it is that like over the years. So I I basically started working in earnest on the book right after Trump was elected. So then. Um, over the course of the year, so that was uh, 2016, 17, and then I started working on it full time in 2018. And every time I would say the book that I was writing on, somebody would say, "Oh, that's so relevant right now." And what they were referring to changed over the years. So it would maybe it was the Muslim ban, or maybe it was family detention, or later on, you know, this book came out a day before the insurrection on the Capitol. So. Now, when I think about this book, I think about the power of misinformation, and I think about folks willfully distorting the truth to their own ends. Um, So it's it's been an interesting process. The way that it lined up from a timeline standpoint, in terms of how I was thinking about it and how I connected it to, you know, there's no mention of this. You know, this book basically, for all intents and purposes, ends in the early 50s, but you know, uh, the the lessons of what was happening over the past four years are sort of throughout it and um, how I was writing it and how I was thinking about it.
2: No, I would think about this book as a contribution to our thinking about equal citizenship in the United States. And the, the draft protest part of the book is for me, uh, and I like sports books a lot, <laughs> but this was the highlight actually because I found that, First of all, it's beautifully written. It's very passionate. You feel like you can uh, see the angry people marching and... The conversations that are had among the Nisei who have been so well educated in the United States to the American narrative, which they then turn on the American mm. government. So, the I I, I found that uh, the fact that you could access that level of of the notes from uh, from these meetings and the kinds of things that people were saying was just terrific. Uh, there's a lot of parallel there between what happens with African Americans um, as they uh, during the Civil War and the extent to which finally the American government is willing to acknowledge citizenship in order to enlist soldiers. And that's, for example, when they give them marriage rights, and that's when they give them. Uh, the promise of stipends and set, et cetera to their families. Um, tell me what you're working on now, Brad.
1: Oh, I wish I could tell you. Uh, it's not. I'm not being purposely coy. I uh, it's. I have a couple. I have a whiteboard in my office right now that has a few ideas on it that I should probably start working on now, or my agent will. Kick down my door at some point, um, but I'll probably go back and, and work on some magazine stories for a little bit because working on a book for a long time, um, you know, sometimes it, it's nice to write something that's not ninety thousand words. Um, so I'd uh, like to do that. Um, I, I've I've really enjoyed learning a lot more about Japanese American life, and this summer I was able to write a few stories for the Times that. Sort of, sort of pulled on threads that I wasn't able to uh, pull on for the book. So there's some other things that still might come from the book that I'm working on. Um, but uh, uh, my uh, uh, the one big book idea I have would also be set at about the same time. So I guess I don't learn my lesson in terms of having sources who are alive that I can speak with. <laughs>
2: Well, you know it's a it's a it's a it's a big crossroads moment in American history, so it's not a surprise that you would want to return to it. Um, I've been talking to Bradford Pearson, who's the author of *The Eagles of Heart Mountain: A True Story of Football, Incarceration, and Resistance in World War II America*, published by Atria Books, an imprint of Simon and Schuster, in 2021. And thanks so much for for your time and for this book. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.